In February 1858, Thomas L. Kane left his home and began the journey to Utah, racing at a pace that in the 19th century was nearly reckless. He was driven by a great fear. That is, that the armed standoff between the Latter-day Saints and the U.S. Army on the frozen plains of Wyoming would suddenly erupt into violence and bloodshed. And so, with what was at best a hazy and ill-defined plan, Thomas Kane set out in the dead of winter, pushing himself night and day in a desperate gamble to stop the Utah War. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Thomas Kane set out in February 1858, sailing from New York City to Panama, and then to Los Angeles, where he would make his way through southern Utah and into Salt Lake City. While he was on board, Kane assumed an undercover identity. He called himself Dr. Osborne, with a cover story that he was a botanist, sponsored by the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences. He was traveling to the Intermountain West to collect specimens of western flora. He kept his true identity a closely guarded secret. What exactly was his plan? His wife Elizabeth later wrote, Tom's plan was to go in disguise to Utah by way of California, winter though it was, and make his unexpected appearance at Brigham Young's very gates. Relying on his own mental force and Young's knowledge of the sincerity of his goodwill to the Mormons, he actually intended to turn a whole people's will and make them ask for peace in the hour of their triumph. While there was much that could go wrong with such a plan, and much that had to go exactly right to make it work, Thomas Kane was undaunted. Sailing with him were a number of soldiers from the 3rd U.S. Artillery. These soldiers freely cursed the Mormons, and openly speculated that Johnston's army could not possibly hold out if the Nauvoo Legion attacked them. Kane listened closely, but said little. On arriving in San Francisco, he scribbled out a hasty note home to his family. I cannot honorably reveal the army's peril. Had you known all, you would not have opposed me coming here. The day is probably past to make peace, but not to save our poor army fellows. Have no fear for my life. The biblical cloud and pillar will be my escort. I swear I will arrive in Utah in time. From San Francisco, he sailed to Los Angeles. Once in the city, Kane began asking around the fastest way to get to Utah. He thought it best to stay undercover and continued to call himself Dr. Osborne, the Philadelphia botanist. This suited Kane, who, in the words of historian Bill McKinnon, had a flair for the dramatic. But the need for secrecy was serious. In February 1858, California was a dangerous place for Latter-day Saints, and anyone thought to be sympathetic to them. Two months before Kane arrived, William Wall of Provo came through Los Angeles, returning home from his mission to Australia. But there, Wall found a hornet's nest. Walking down the street, he suddenly found himself surrounded by roughly two dozen enraged Angelinos. Wall later described what happened. They seemed very much excited. They threatened me most furiously to hang me. One of them said he would sooner see Brigham Young's blood run than to see cold spring water when he was dry. But after some time, they backed off. 
and Wall was able to make it back to his hotel room. But this mob had only dissipated with the idea of coming back under cover of darkness. About 10 o'clock that evening, a large group assembled and made their way to Wall's hotel room. Finding his door locked, they began pounding on it, demanding that he open up. He described what happened next. They said it was no use. They had got to hang me and were going to do it. I told the mob that I should not unlock the door. They could kick it down if they wished, as it was very shaky. But there was one thing certain, he warned them. The man that came in first, I would kill. It turned out, under those conditions, nobody was willing to go in first. And after some time, they again dispersed. But so bitter was their hatred of Latter-day Saints at that time that they again assembled in the morning. When Wall stepped outside to begin his journey to Utah, he found the same mob waiting for him, again determined to carry out a lynching. He described what happened next. I became satisfied that they would kill me, and I bore a faithful testimony of the truth of the gospel. When he was finished, he then offered a testimony of a somewhat different kind, holding up what he called a splendid double-barreled shotgun and unsheathing a good bowie knife, he told the assembled mob, there was one thing I wanted to impress upon them, and that was that some of them had got to die in the operation of lynching me. They stepped back a little, I got into my carriage and rode off. It was into this environment that the mysterious botanist, Dr. Osborne, arrived, and without wasting a moment, began asking the fastest way to Utah and offering large amounts of cash to take him there. But this raised a lot of questions. A California newspaper described the resulting trouble. On the steamer San Pedro, there arrived a young man of lively and prepossessing appearance who was made known to me as a devotee to botany and the natural sciences. He offered a hundred dollars in all expenses to drive him to Salt Lake City in 15 days. The offer was declined as impractical. Dr. Osborne announced himself as a botanist in pursuit of science. When it became known that he wished to be expressed through to Salt Lake and he had made very liberal offers of payment, the suspicion of the citizens was aroused. The people of this outpost are very easily excited whenever the Mormons are in question. The angry citizens called a meeting and appointed a committee to wait upon this botanist, demanding his business and charging him with being a Mormon emissary. He denied all the charges, but the demonstrations were so uh, decisive that he deemed it prudent to exhibit several letters of identification, purporting to be from James Buchanan. He declared that he was a cane, the brother of the Arctic explorer, and that he was traveling on government business. The people were not satisfied with his explanation, but before the public was aware of it, he had started for Utah. He next arrived in the city of San Bernardino, where he continued to call himself Dr. Osborne, the botanist. But he fared no better in San Bernardino than he had in Los Angeles. By the time he arrived, he was exhausted from illness. He found a tavern and lay down on the floor to sleep. But the night was not very restful in this hard-drinking, hard-living western town. As Kane lay shaking with fever, a fight broke out among the rowdy patrons of the saloon. Suddenly, the door to his room flew open and two drunken men came bursting into the room, 
swinging wild punches at each other and stumbling into the darkness. In the confusion, they both fell hard on top of the fever-bound cane. The next morning, he found a new room. San Bernardino had a vigilance committee, a sort of vigilante group of citizens responsible for imposing law in the lawless West. But frequently, these vigilance committees just dissipated into organized lynch mobs. And in 1858, the San Bernardino Vigilance Committee was on the lookout for Latter-day Saints. It was led by a man named William Pickett. Pickett not only saw through Dr. Osborne, but recognized him as Thomas Kane, the friend of the Latter-day Saints. Twelve years earlier, Pickett himself had been among the pioneer saints in winter quarters when Colonel Kane then made his appearance. That night, Pickett called for a meeting of the Vigilance Committee in one of the city's taverns. He demanded that the committee, or the mob, march to Kane's hotel and drag him from his room. The committee responded enthusiastically and began making its way toward Thomas Kane's hotel room. But William Pickett was not the only one in San Bernardino with ties to the Latter-day Saints. Also living in the city was Francis Swan Clark, who had been a Scottish convert and emigrated to Nauvoo. She had been a plural wife of Heber C. Kimball, and in April of 1846 had given birth to a baby girl. When she and her baby evacuated the city and moved into winter quarters on the plains of Iowa, her baby grew weaker and weaker, and despite all her efforts, finally succumbed. She was buried in winter quarters in August of that year. Frances Swan would cross the plains to Utah in 1848, but as the years passed, the grief of her loss only seemed to grow heavier, and in 1852, she left Heber C. Kimball and moved on to San Bernardino, where she met and married George Clark. Now, six years later, when she heard an armed group of the Vigilance Committee was on its way to seize Dr. Osborne, she ran to his hotel room to warn him. She found his room was empty, except for his traveling bag, complete with the letters of introduction that Kane would need to succeed in his mission. These included letters of introduction from James Buchanan to the Army officials, and also letters from church agent Ebenezer Hanks to the Latter-day Saints in the settlements he would pass through. Thinking quickly, she hid the bag nearby and waited for Kane to return. But it was the Vigilance Committee, not Thomas Kane, who first arrived at the hotel. She declared that Kane was gone and had taken his effects and belongings with him. The mob then marched off to continue their hunt elsewhere. Thankfully for Kane, Francis Swan Clark was not the only one looking out for him. Colonel Alden Jackson, a prominent citizen of San Bernardino, was also a Latter-day Saint, although he did not advertise the fact. When he saw the Vigilance Committee making preparations for what was likely to result in a lynching, he rushed to Kane's hotel room. With no time to secure his letters, documents, or belongings, Colonel Jackson grabbed the feverish Kane and spirited him out a side door and transported him to a safe house, which, it turned out, was the farmhouse of George and Francis Clark. Here, Dr. Osborne stayed hidden for a few days as he tried to regain his health. But sick as he was, he insisted on pushing on to the Salt Lake Valley. As he prepared to leave, he told the Jacksons and the Clarks what he believed to be a grand secret. 
Although the angry citizens of Los Angeles had already forced him to disclose his identity, and William Pickett of the Vigilance Committee had recognized him on site, and a local newspaper had already published who he was, this did not discourage him, and he dramatically revealed to his friends that he was not, in fact, Dr. Osborne, but none other than Colonel Thomas Kane of Pennsylvania, and that he was racing to Utah to avert a war. It was then that Francis Swan Clark, in turn, revealed a secret of her own. Colonel Kane, you did not deceive me. I knew you the night you were brought here. She then reminded him of their meeting 12 years earlier in winter quarters. You came to my wagon when my child lay dying on the banks of the Mississippi River. Do you think I could ever forget you? I knew your voice, and you could not disguise your eyes. She and the Jacksons then loaded him with supplies for his journey and saw him off as he continued his race to Salt Lake City. But the difficulties and dangers he had experienced in California seemed to invigorate him rather than discourage him. He wrote a short message to his brother, Patrick. The manner in which the malice of my enemies at San Bernardino helped me to so gloriously run the gauntlet through the Mormon Indian country of Deseret. I assure you this was but one of a half a hundred provinces which seemed to have on occasion specially disposed themselves on my behalf. I seem to have a charmed life, and the strongest argument on which I may base my hope that I shall yet win a peace is what other less important purpose has such a stock of miracles been spent for? Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson.